guest today is a licensed marriage and family therapist, as well as a certified sex therapist. In her private practice, Portland Sex Therapy, she provides counseling to individuals and relationships with a focus on desired differences in couples and working with people in the poly and kinky communities. I had a fantastic time talking with my friend, Alana Ogilvie. Alana, mm-hmm. sex is one of those things that uh, can be taboo, it can be honest, it can be real, it, it, it's something that you're exposed to as a youngster, and you don't quite understand what it is. You just know it's something that the adults do. Mm-hmm. And then you get into your adolescence, and maybe some things happen, maybe you wait a little while, and you get into your 20s, but there's always so much pressure surrounding it. And there are so many different things that influence what can happen and the way that you're attracted to somebody. And it's it's fascinating to me because a lot of it depends on where you're at in life and where you work or if you're going to college. And there are so many tiny intricacies of life that bring you together with somebody mm-hmm. and you potentially end up with this person based off of that one event. And as you go through life, maybe things fade a little bit and maybe you kind of aren't with with the right person. Maybe things, uh, you just kind of separate. And sometimes that can be due to your sex life. And that's who you work with, right? A fair amount of the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say that uh, desire discrepant couples are the number one thing that I see in my practice. Um, Desire discrepancy being... um, you know, one partner has a higher sense or a higher level, if you will, of uh, sexual desire than their partner does. So their partner is lower than them. Um, and this causes problems in their relationship, uh, either around initiating sex or around how often they're having sex or even to how satisfied they are with their sex life. I feel like that's the number one thing that I see uh, in my in my practice. But I think sex therapy also includes a lot of other things like ultimately sex therapy is about you know uh it's talk therapy right so i like to joke with folks that i am a clothes on hands off kind of girl in terms of talking about sex uh that's don't do the rest of it um (laughs) my license will not allow that uh sex therapy is about you know really getting into the interpersonal and the psychological factors that are hindering people's ability to enjoy their sexual experiences or maybe feel like a you know fully uh formed or like fledged sexual being yeah sure and is it true that a lot of that can stem from events in childhood or adolescence the sort of uh disparities between that is that kind of any any sort of issue you may have i would say that it's hard to not be influenced by childhood and maybe to uh, what we might call your family of origin, the people you grew up with. Um, Those are pretty formative years in people's uh, psychological development. So yeah, I think the things that we pick up around gender and sex and sexuality and um, the values and beliefs that were sort of uh, imprinted or given to us around those things definitely accumulate pretty quickly in childhood. But I would say too, that there's a lot of experiences that you can have between, you know, then and when I finally see you in my office, that can absolutely impact your 
desire for sex, your ability to feel like a sexual person, all that stuff. So what what is the main concern that people have when they come to see you? It kind of depends on how it's being framed. Um, as I mentioned, that desire discrepancy seems to be like the big issue. And the fact that they are different seems to be the primary concern. But I would say that uh, the way it's presented to me is as unique as the people that are coming to my office, right? I might have one couple who says to me, um, well, we're not having sex very often. And it's because, um, let's call this like a cis hetero couple. And it's because she's uh, not interested in me. She's not um, sexually attracted to me anymore. And I feel resentful and uh, rejected. And I'm just not talking to her anymore. And then I might have another uh, couple who comes in. Let's say it's another cis hetero couple. Um, and this time she's saying, well, he just wants sex all the time. He must be an addict. Like I catch him looking at porn all the time. And I'm like, okay, all right, well, this is a very different presentation, mm -hmm. but it might be a very similar issue. So it kind of depends on how it's being, as I said, framed or presented to me. But I think that, um, yeah, I would still say that that's probably the number one thing. And typically who is coming to you with the request for help? Is it typically women? I feel like that's a good question. It tends to be couples primarily. I work mostly with with couples. And I would say of late, it might actually be more men reaching out to me. Hmm. Like the male partner. See, to to me, it, it seems like men typically mm -hmm. generally have a stronger sex drive than than women do. But men are more afraid to get help. Men are more afraid to say, Can you help me fix this? because that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to figure it out ourselves. And so it seems like this weird dichotomy where the men, and I'm just generalizing, the men probably aren't getting sex as much as they want to, mm -hmm. but the female is gonna be the one that has to call you and say, can you help us? It's funny, I think you, you definitely called out some uh, issues around toxic masculinity that I'm sure people have in terms of like seeking therapy or seeking therapeutic help. I also wonder if part of that's because, you know, because as a man, you're supposed to want sex. You're supposed to be this like violent sex crazed creature. <laughs> that's probably not true for everybody. But if sex is the issue, then maybe I feel okay talking to somebody about it because it's so bothersome to me, right? It's such a big, not even part of your personality, but just like part of your life, it means a lot to you. Maybe it's really important to you. And the fact that sex isn't happening with this person that you love and care about is probably so distressing that you might actually get over this, like, well, I shouldn't need help because I'm a big, strong man or mm -hmm. whatever values or beliefs we kind of have around that. So I will admit though, I haven't talked to the clients that have been coming to me lately. I don't know if that's uh, their motivation for doing so, but I think you brought up a really interesting point about that. So you're saying you don't necessarily know who is booking the appointment. You're just meeting the people and beginning from there. No, that, uh, I guess I mean to say, I don't know what their motivation is explicitly. Um, oh. If they're saying, well, I, I don't want to come to therapy, but this is really important to me. So I guess we'll just fucking do it or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, it actually is really interesting to me. I like to know who is the more motivated partner, like who is contacting me to book the appointment, like who is pursuing therapy? Because there's usually someone who 
is going to therapy and there's someone who's usually being taken to therapy. Yes, because marriage is crazy. That's one way of putting it. You uh, you decide that you're going to spend your life with this person. And I'm not saying it can't work out, but it's really hard. Mm-hmm. And typically, there are going to be things, chores and tasks and responsibilities that are not balanced. And I think the most successful marriages, they figure out how to balance it, even if it's not balanced. Like, for example... You do the dishes and I'll do the laundry. Like, you got to equal things out. It seems like a lot of times when there's issues, it's because someone feels like they're doing too much. You know? And then it creates problems. And, I mean, there can be any number of other things going on within a marriage. But when you finish the day and you go to bed... That's that's a thing that I think most people kind of expect should be good. It shouldn't be mm-hmm. that hard. Mm-hmm. And it is bothersome to men or women if they're not meeting each other's needs once they get done with the day and they go to bed. Like, that should be a time where you can just enjoy each other. But if you're so upset about everything that's happened with the day, like, then you don't want to do anything. I feel like there's a lot to be said for for that. The Division of labor uh, in a partnership is a thing that gets talked about often in my office. Uh, It's interesting because I feel like a lot of people, uh, especially lately, because I do advertise myself as a sex therapist, I'm a couples and sex therapist, but because I have this specialty, there are a lot of people that come to see me specifically for that. And while we end up talking about that, and I think that's a big reason why they're there, we end up talking about a whole array of other things like who did the dishes last and who's resentful about it and how are we talking about getting our needs met not just in the bedroom but maybe too also around the house or with you know our emotional needs and maybe to physical needs that go beyond intimacy right so i think there's yeah if you feel like you're either doing too much or you feel like you're compromising yourself to do the things that you're being asked to do then i imagine that will lead you to either my office or to somebody else's yeah it shouldn't be it shouldn't be transactional but it has the potential to become that it has the potential to be like and maybe this is me just personalizing it but it uh i was married at one point (laughs) i'm not anymore uh things were good to a certain extent, but then it kind of felt like it became, uh, you do this for me, I do that for you. It became like something that was held back unless I achieved whatever I was supposed to achieve, which can be kind of weird. And that, I mean, there were a number of other issues and I don't want to turn this into something about me, but uh, when when you're with somebody, and your goal is to um, just spend your life together, maybe raise a family. There are so many obstacles all the time. And it becomes so challenging to figure out how to do that. And like you said, I mean, maybe people come to you for sex therapy, but it involves other things. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of peel back the layers as you go, right? And so how often is it not just about sex? How often is it about something else? Uh, I feel like 
not that it's about something else, but I think it's often about sex in addition to something else. Uh, one of my professors, I want to say, uh, told us time and time again that when sex works, it's like 10% of your relationship, right? You're probably doing a lot of other things other than just having sex, right? That's maybe like relegated over here. But when it's not working, it feels like it's 90% of the problem. Yeah. Right. It feels like it's much bigger and much more awful and discouraging than maybe a lot of other things. And I think it's because sex can be so meaningful to people. It's how we feel physically, but maybe also too emotionally connected. It's a place where we feel incredibly vulnerable with another person. And so if that's not working, it might feel like there's this huge hole in our ability to connect with this person that we care about, that we've chosen to be with for hopefully the rest of our lives. And I imagine that feels like it's therefore the worst possible thing, even though it probably has a lot more to do. Um, or maybe has it, it has, uh, there's other things that it has to do with rather than just sex. Okay. When you talk to your friends, what do they complain about with their husbands? Uh, oh, I wonder if I'm breaking anybody's confidence. Uh, <laughs> you can be honestly, generic if you want. I, say, I feel like it's kind of the same stuff, right? Like, uh, Do they it, complain about not having sex, though? Do, you, do my friends complain about not having sex? Or do, uh, you don't have to, like, no. explicit your friends, but people you know. Y you know what? Females people, that you know. Some people do. Um I would say that's not necessarily the concern among my friends. I think. Uh, what 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 is their complaint about their husband? <laughs> their that that their he doesn't husband. do X. Uh, I mean, I've certainly heard whether it's my friends, and honestly, I'll include some of my clients in this too. Uh, he's not attentive. I don't feel emotionally connected. Yes. How can you expect me to be physical with you in the bedroom when you don't? do what I ask you to do around the house or you're yes. not really meeting my needs in other places in our life. So I feel like that's in some ways that becomes a bit of a dichotomy. And I feel like when I find that in my office, that's always an interesting one. I'm like, Oh, you want connection through physical means and your partner wants connection through emotional means. And I feel like it's pretty reductive, but I think that's always an interesting place to find ourselves in, in the work. I'm like, Oh, do you see how these two things feel so opposite from each other, but actually can be simpatico, mm -hmm. <laughs> can be in fact the same thing. For sure. um, but I would say that that's probably the, the biggest complaint and maybe how it's framed to me, um, especially from, uh, again, cis, het, female clients, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's the disconnect between men and women in, in a, a traditional relationship, male and female. Men, mm -hmm most of the time will complain they don't have enough sex. And when they do that, I say, well, what's going on? Like, uh, are you guys hanging out? You're going to dinner? Are you going to movies? Are you, like, what's going on? And there's a disconnect between the things that they're doing for their lady. And I'm like, you can't expect it all to work right. Like, there's so much involved. And I'm not saying women are difficult. I'm saying you, as, as a female, mm -hmm. have so much more going on than we do. We're very simple. And we don't understand a lot of what's happening. And I think that's, that's part of the communication breakdown, is that uh, you need to be able to explain things to someone in a way that they can understand. And men are not very smart 
We're not. And we can't, uh, we can't always do what we want to do, although we sometimes try, sometimes I guess we don't. But it is so difficult. And I, I feel for you in a, a career aspect where you're working with people and it might be super clear to you what needs to happen and what needs to change. But like we were talking about before we started recording, you can't, you can't make somebody change. They have to want to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not really up to me to decide what you're supposed to do with it. I can certainly point it out to you. Yeah. Right? Like, I think what a lot of, well, maybe what some people don't realize is that therapy in particular is about coming to terms with how you might be contributing negatively to your own situation, right? The only person you can control is yourself. And so if I come in and I say, hey, I hear that you want more sex, but I also hear that you're not really helping your partner with their needs. And so I would love to understand how that equals you getting your needs met. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it's transactional. What I'm saying is, let's try to think of the two of you as a unit, right? If one half of the unit isn't being taken care of, the whole thing is going to break down. Yeah. Right? If you're not doing your part, if you're not pulling your weight, whatever that looks like or whatever you define that as, then the likelihood that your side of the equation is going to get taken care of is, I don't want to say slim to none, but it's certainly dwindling the longer you keep doing this. So do you want to keep doing it this way? Or do you want to consider that there are other ways of going about getting your needs met and talking about this and working through conflict with your partner, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, it is so exciting when you meet someone mm -hmm. and you're, you're in the, the honeymoon phase mm -hmm. and everything is wonderful and new. And then you get into marriage and that's when you figure out if it's going to work or not, because I'm not the same person I was when I was 21. Mm -hmm. I'm not the same person I was when I was 31 and I'm 39 now. And I feel like, I feel like I've been 10 different people mm -hmm. and I'm mostly me, but I've gotten so much smarter and me now is so much more capable of being in a relationship than 21 year old me. And that's when I met my ex-wife and that's when we had kids and we did all the stuff. And as you go through time and you grow and you learn new stuff, Sometimes it doesn't work out with whoever you're with and you're, you're past all the exciting stuff and you're just in the grind. Mm -hmm. And I think there are also a lot of people who, um, once you have settled down with somebody and kind of locked that in, you stop trying. You, you, you're there. What else, what else do you, I mean, I'm, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I'm saying like, it feels like you could potentially just reach the point where you're like, oh, well, it's all good. You know, she's married to me now. I can just do the things I do. You know, I'll go to work, come home, whatever. If you don't continue to try and improve yourself mm -hmm. and like work on your body and try to learn new things, like you just become a stale, regular, boring person. And that's not who... That's not where the connection was made at the beginning. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot to be said for the newness and the excitement 
um, in the poly community, you might call it the like new relationship energy that just kind of you feed off of for the first like three to 18 months of your relationship, right? Sometimes it even goes on to like three years, but then things do kind of settle, right? I like to tell my clients that in the honeymoon period, you're probably high off of each other, right? There's so much dopamine and oxytocin and you're like bonding with this person like you've never done before. And I feel like it's an evolutionary mechanism, but you should probably look at some research on that front. But that wears off over time, like any good drug, right? You build up a tolerance to each other. And then after you build up this tolerance, things kind of settle between you. I think you use the word, you kind of settle into your life. Yeah. And I feel like too, that's also the place where people realize that how they experience life and what they want out of it. And even to like how they experience sex and their desire for it, all of that starts to look very different. You're like, oh, you don't think about it the same way that I do. And that I imagine feels, can feel very threatening for people, especially if you've never had someone model for you how to talk about sex or how to come out of this place where you feel like you're in a bit of a rut, where you start arguing a lot and you don't know how to get out of the same argument that you feel like you're having all the time, right? You're probably not like you're arguing about the dishes, but you're probably not arguing about the dishes. <laughs> no. And I feel like you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and the more you get stuck in that, I'm sure too, the more you just feel like, well, why bother trying? Right? Like if we're gonna keep having the same argument and it doesn't feel resolved, all we do is just manage it until the next time we have the same argument, but about something different, then I'm I'm not gonna bother trying anymore. I'm just gonna totally sit back and be like, well, this is good enough. Mm-hmm. It's good enough for now. And I will admit that's often where couples are coming to me from is what I, I like to call that like the recession stage, like intimacy and your ability to connect with each other has just like completely receded. Like it's all eroded away and we don't really know how to get it back. And we also don't really know if we want to take that kind of risk, right? Like why would I bother trying to broach these conversations about things that are really important to me when I have no guarantee? In fact, history has shown me that if I try to talk to you about this, it's going to go very, very poorly. So I'm just, I'm just not going to. Right. Yeah. And then at that point, I mean, hopefully it's not too far into the, the negative aspect of the marriage because that's the goal, right? They come and talk to you or any number of professionals and you help them view it a different way and, and try to communicate a different way. I would love it if people came to see me earlier, quite honestly. Right. Uh, they should come when things are good, right? That would be lovely. Um I honestly, I love working with couples that are um, either a premarital couple or someone who's like pre like big commitment to this person that they want to be with. Because uh, I feel like that kind of like preventative work, like here's how to fight fair in your relationship. Here's the stuff that you're probably going to have to deal with, right? Here's your stuff. Here's your stuff. This is how we manage it together. And then I feel like it would, it, what's that phrase? The, uh, ounce of uh, prevention is worth a pound of cure. <laughs> I okay. feel like there's a lot to be said for that. Because by the time couples get to me, they're like seven, eight years into this thing that they didn't realize was accumulating underneath them. And and now it feels overwhelming. And I'm like, we have a lot to sift through. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's not doable. I'm just saying it's going to be a lot more work now than if you had come to see me even like three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think yeah, I would love it if everyone came sooner. <laughs> Do you find it more beneficial to work individually or to work with them as a couple? 
I think it depends uh, on the issue we're facing, but I, 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 mm, I prefer to see couples. Yeah. I feel like that's been my bread and butter for a very long time. In fact, I, that's why I went to school is I wanted to be a relationship therapist. And it just so happened that I was like, wait, none of these programs talk about sex. And I feel like that's a pretty big part of people's relationships. So how could I be a good relationship therapist if I don't know how to talk to people about their sex life? Mm -hmm. I'm going to go specifically to a program that does both. So that's kind of how that happened. Mm -hmm. But I feel like I am often looking at sexual issues in the context of people's relationships. So seeing them as a couple makes more sense to me. Um, but I'm sure that there are times and there often are times where individual concerns, it's not that they take precedence, but they definitely have an impact on what it is that we're talking about. Like if somebody has sexual trauma or if someone is like dealing with something else in their life that maybe feels like it's kind of overtaking whatever it is that we're talking about, then either we can work on it in this space and maybe I'll spend a little bit more time with this person individually. Or I might say like, hey, I think maybe you need your individual therapist or an individual therapist to talk to about this so that we can go back to focusing on what it is that you wanted to focus on in here. Mm -hmm. So, And how often do you have a couple in there and somebody exposes something that the other didn't know about? Like childhood sexual trauma or something like that do, do do the spouses typically know or is it sometimes like oh my god i didn't know that happened it's been a while since i've had a, uh, a bomb dropped like that in my office i think most of the time especially lately when i have a couple come in um and they'll talk about like this happened to me in childhood or this happened to me in college and i, I will usually look to the other partner and be like is this something that you've heard before have you talked about this and they're usually like yeah, we have, and uh, maybe with limited <laughs> success, but it's something that I'm not unfamiliar with. So it doesn't seem to happen nearly as often. Um, I feel like there's maybe one time early in my career, though, where someone was like, yeah, well, you don't know, but, you know, one of our mutual friends, like, sexually assaulted me, like, three years ago. And we're like, oh, okay, we're going to have to have talk about that. So Yeah, that would be yeah. brutal mm -hmm. to yeah. find out about that with, with you in mm -hmm. the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like using me or even, like, the therapy office, like, as the space to, like, talk about some of those things feels uh, compelling to some people. They're like, well, uh, at least here – we can minimize the damage of having said something so, I mean, awful, quite honestly. Uh, it might have really huge ramifications to our relationship, but at least we have a third party who's here. One, they're watching, so don't freak out. And two, <laughs> maybe they'll help us deal with it now. Yeah. Um, I, I Again, I haven't had that happen to me in a while, but I could imagine there is some benefit to saying like, well, at least this is a safe container to try to talk about this, even though sometimes when it comes out like that, it's you do have to do some damage control. Well, the time limit is a benefit too, because you know, it, problems I've had in the past is, is feeling like some sort of resolution. Mm -hmm. I like it to get to a point where I was like, oh, we accomplished something, we achieved something. It's difficult when there's no goal and you're just constantly talking about it. Mm -hmm. And so a time limit, can be nice, then you kind of, you know, this is what we're talking about today. And then it's done. And you can kind of go back and think about it, maybe discuss it at home. And then you come back again and rehash it. Like, I don't know, it seems like it would be 
too much to do like an eight hour session. That would probably be far too much for me personally. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do think that there are therapists and uh, some folks that do like intensives. Um, I'm just thinking of some, probably some bigger names that have written a bunch of books and mm-hmm. far, far more popular than I am that do like eight hour, like, you know, three or four hour sessions. And then they have like a lunch break and then another three or four hour session with clients that have like flown in from elsewhere just Mm -hmm. to be seen by this person. Um, I just don't think I could do something like that. Uh, That being said, sometimes the time, the time limit is great. I mean, it does give certainly me an opportunity to be like, okay, let's try to put a pin in this and we'll come back to it. But then I also feel like there are times where I'm like, we could probably keep talking for another a whole other session and it might not be any different. You might yeah. not feel any better. Like sometimes trying to tie a bow on the end of a session when things are really hard or if honestly someone has just made, let's call it like a doorknob comment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of thing that you should have been talking about in the beginning of the session, but you wait until five minutes until we're supposed oh. to end and then they say it. I'm like, that's the doorknob comment. Uh, I'm like, well, it's going to be really difficult to wrap up now because now I have to try to contain that. And um, we're going to come back to that next time. <laughs> when am I seeing you again? That's It's kind of difficult. Um, but I think that probably depends too. So. so when you're working with people, what is what is the general concern? What is the, the main reason that they typically come to see you? And what, what do they hope to achieve? I mean, are they at a point where they think they're going to get divorced and you are going to save this marriage? I mean, is that pressure? Do people put that pressure on you? It doesn't feel like pressure to me, honestly, because, again, coming back to the I can only guide you, right? Like, if anyone's going to save your marriage, it's going to be you. So do you want to save your marriage is the question I'm going to pose to you. Uh, and that being said, I don't know how many of my clients – right now or in a place where they're thinking about getting divorced. But I do get the impression that how they are currently living and the emotional, physical, sexual connection that they have with their partner does not feel sustainable, right? Like maybe we can go on like this for another like eight years, but that doesn't seem preferable. Let's definitely not do that. I also have a few couples that come in, uh, knowing that they have some sexual issues that they want to talk about, but maybe to also emphasizing, hey, we have communication problems uh, or we just fight a lot of the time. And it feels like it could be related to our sexual issues, but that is also a pretty big concern. I feel like those two often go hand in hand, especially if you're seeing someone like me who's both a relationship, but also a sex therapist. Yeah. And so how often do the negative aspects of the relationship day-to-day stuff influence whether or not they're having sex later? I feel like a fair amount, but it probably depends on who you're asking. Uh, I think it might impact one partner more than another, uh, if that makes sense. And then I feel like the issue then becomes, so how do we get everybody to see that the fact that you are fighting just creates just a lot of tension in your relationship generally that makes it so that one or both of you don't want to have sex later. And that's a big part of the problem. Uh, I think very often, especially if I'm working again with cishet couples, it is uh, a female partner 
who often has, um, let's call it responsive desire, someone who needs like the right circumstances or even to like some kind of like cue that like sex is going to happen in order to get into it. And their partner who's more spontaneous, like they might've been thinking about sex randomly on and off for the last like five hours um, and doesn't like require anything to like get them in the mood. Those two things feel a little bit different. Um, I, yeah, I feel like there's some concern about uh, responsive desire partner probably feels like the fighting and even to like the lack of emotional connection is a really big hindrance to getting into the physical stuff. And then I feel like spontaneous partner is often like, but why don't we have sex? And I'm like, oh, sweet, sweet baby. I'd yeah. love to talk to you about that. Yeah, it's it's hard to understand when you're in it. That's why it's nice to have a third party. But I don't think women can understand what it's like to be a dude. And I don't think a man can understand what it's like to be a woman. We're so different in so many ways. And our, our day-to-day thought process is just so different. I mean, I think that's, that's a fair point. <laughs> I think, though, it probably also can go in the other direction, right? I've, I've had a lot of partners, um, you know, gay, straight, queer, coming to me and saying, you know, Actually, in some instances, it's the female partner who actually has like more spontaneous desire and it's the male partner who maybe feels more responsive, right? Like there's definitely opportunities for it actually to be slightly different. Different, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, But I agree with you that I think that the main problem that people are often presenting with, whether they use this language or not, is that they realize that they're different. And they don't know how to manage their differences while remaining connected to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big issue that a lot of couples, individuals face is like, how do I get to be myself in the face of you, my partner, also being yourself and us being able to stay, you know, in connection to each other, being able to stay in this space that feels vulnerable and intimate without sacrificing ourselves. Right? I think that this, that balance is really hard for people to strike. And I think that's a big part of the issue. Yeah. And you don't always know at the beginning. You don't always know once you get into things. It might take a few years. You just kind of, I don't know, people are weird. You just kind of do what you're doing. And maybe you know it's not quite what you want, but you just keep doing it. And then after a while, you're like, oh, man is this what I'm going to do forever? I mean, we were talking about before about uh, my job and, and um, yeah, you reach a point where you're just like, I don't have that much time. Mm. And I'm not like arguing for people to get divorced or, you know, cheat on their spouses or whatever right now, but you just reach a point where you're like, I don't like what's happening. Mm-hmm. I need something different. Mm-hmm. And hopefully you love the person enough and they love you enough. You guys can kind of figure it out, but that's what's so challenging about a marriage. Mm -hmm. And I know this is so negative, but I know so many people who are in shitty marriages who don't want to be married, but they're so, they're so set on routine 
that it's easier to just keep doing what they're doing than to try to change it. Better the devil you know <laughs> than the devil you don't. Yeah. Right. The thing that feels familiar to you, while it is not great, probably in its own strange way feels comfortable. Yes. Right. We are uh, terrible at change, I think, in general. Uh, some of us might be good at making changes in our life, but I think when it comes to big things like the trajectory of our relationships or even the course of our life as a human being, I feel like making big changes like that is probably incredibly overwhelming. And a lot of people don't know how to, nor do they want to go down that path, especially if they have no certainty about where it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier just to stay. Stay where you are. Stay in the pond. Stay mm -hmm. miserable. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bummer sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Those folks are not coming to see me. <laughs> no, they're not. No. No, they're not. No. Uh, so tell me more about the poly community because I'm a pretty adventurous guy and I've done, I've done some things and I like to, I like to experience everything that I can. I like to travel done psychedelics like i'm not afraid of of trying things but this whole idea of having multiple partners without anybody getting emotionally involved seems fucking crazy let's say i think for what it is worth i think in the poly community part of it actually is because polyamory means many loves there is actually when you use that term some some level of emotional connection now, if you want to have more of like a uh, maybe more like ethical non-monogamy or like an open relationship, maybe something that feels uh, less emotionally involved, depending on the term that you want to use, then I, I think we might be kidding ourselves that there aren't going to be feelings generally. Yeah. I think there's a fair amount of feelings, uh, regardless of what kind of relational status you want to take with people. Uh, I should probably be clear, though, while I work with poly folks and while we do, uh, we are recording in Portland and there's a rather big poly community here in, in Portland, uh, I let my clients do that. I tend to kind of keep away from from those things. I feel like it might be weird if clients saw me at a sex club or at a poly <laughs> event. Be like, oh, our therapist is here. <laughs> right, that's kind of weird. Like it's weird enough seeing me at the grocery store. Could you imagine what it would be like if we're all like half naked and like wandering yeah. around at this club? I feel yeah. like that'd be kind of strange. Yeah. Um, so I guess I say that to, to say, if you want more information on like, what's the down low on the poly community in Portland, I'm not dialed in. And that's, that's okay. pretty much, yeah, that's I pretty much why. I wasn't <laughs> implying that you were. I meant more like working with, poly individuals it seems like that would be the general concern when they came to see you is that they developed emotions for the person and there, there's nothing they can do i think that it kind of depends more so on like what's the structure of their relationship right um if i'm working with either a couple or if two i'm working with an individual uh, and let's say I'm working with a couple and one of the partners is actually like really fond of this other person that they are seeing and maybe wants to elevate them in terms of like how often they're seeing them or maybe too wants to have them be more of like a primary partner if we want to use that language. And it feels, it feels like maybe it's kind of bumping up against what their partner wants, which is maybe 
well, I want to keep being your primary partner. Like we live together. Like I kind of want to keep things the way that they are. Navigating that becomes a little bit difficult. But yeah, I would say it probably depends on on what the issue is when people are are coming to see me. Sometimes it's not about the emotional aspects of that. In fact, I, I think it's more often in my practice specifically, folks are coming to see me because they want to open up their relationship. They're just not entirely sure how to do that. And it feels like there's a lot of barriers to maneuvering their relationship. Often they're married or at least they've been cohabitating for a while into something that's a bit more open and has more yeah, partners so, involved. So how often is that situation, let's mm-hmm. say traditional male, female, married, somebody decides they want to open it up mm-hmm. and the other person is like, what? How often is that a thing? I feel like that's a fair amount of the time <laughs> that they're coming into my office. Uh, that would be that would be a very challenging thing to deal with if mm-hmm. you, that was your, your person. And then mm-hmm. they're like, I want to be with other people. And that could be difficult. Mm-hmm. Sometimes... Yes, especially if it comes out of the blue or like out of left field for someone, absolutely, that would be really difficult to handle. Sometimes, though, it's born out of we've been fighting for a long time, we've been mismatched in our libidos for even longer or for just about as long. I don't think that you're getting your sexual needs met. I'm not getting my sexual needs met. Maybe we should open up our relationship because then that might actually take the pressure off of our relationship being able to provide that to us. Isn't, so, isn't it just a different form of divorce? But remember, people don't like change. So they want, their, is, they, they want to live in the same house. They want to drive the same cars. They want to have the mortgage taken care of. But they want to fuck other people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So that's like, I get it. But <laughs> it's also less of a change than getting a divorce, right? Yeah. But that's probably going to happen at some point. That's not necessarily if you don't do it right, right? If if we're opening up for whatever reason and we're not being diligent to work through whatever emotions are coming up or to get to a place where it feels like this arrangement or this contract is working for everybody, then, yeah, the potential of that resentment or you know, a feeling of like guilt or dissatisfaction or disappointment even with the whole situation is far more likely to occur. And then absolutely, that usually leads to ill will, separation, divorce. Do you feel like this is more common in Portland? The being in poly relationships or yeah. getting, uh, I cannot say for sure, uh, only being licensed in Oregon and Washington. Uh, that is where my experience is pretty limited to. Um, but I, I certainly haven't seen it happen like a great deal of the time. It's often when clients are coming to see me and there's a sexual issue and they're saying, we've considered opening up our relationship. I'm like, I mean, I imagine that you have because I feel like that's especially <laughs> these days a thing that crosses people's people's minds but Mm -hmm. i can't speak to the frequency of it happening here versus other places yeah it seems like it wasn't really a thing until maybe the last 20 30 years 40 years maybe a little bit more so i feel like poly in particular polyamory i think was a term that was coined in maybe the late 60s or 70s so 
I mean, it's been around for a while. And I feel like you can talk about like swingers parties happening like even before yeah, then. Yeah. Um, so it's not like non-monogamy is new to us by any stretch of the imagination, but talking about it and having it be more open or out in popular culture, I would agree. I think has happened a lot more in the yeah. last like, yeah, 20, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes me think of, uh, the Mormon religion with all their wives, but that they're not really entering into that willingly. It's just kind of like religion based. I don't know about, uh, I can't speak to the, to the Mormons in this instance, but I also feel like polyamory is probably a little bit different than polygamy. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so how often does infidelity factor into what you're doing? It does factor in sometimes. Um, in fact, speaking again of non-monogamy and, and opening up their relationship, sometimes that's actually the catalyst for people considering opening up their relationship. One or both partners cheated and it feels like, well, that either brought about this like new like surge in their relationship. Maybe now that they've worked through that, they're feeling a lot more connected. Maybe we should consider opening up our relationship because it turns out maybe that that could be okay for us as long as we manage it appropriately. Other times people are like, well, instead of, you know, you going behind my back and cheating on me, I would really like it if maybe we talked about this openly and we did this in a way that's just all out on the table. So I would say that Sometimes those things go hand in hand in my practice. If I have a couple talking about wanting to open up their relationship, sometimes there is infidelity in their history with each other. Not all the time, but sometimes. Um, but then I will also say that in general, if I have clients who are coming in, again, for this desire discrepancy we were talking about, uh, sometimes there will have been an affair. Uh, sometimes there's cheating. Sometimes there's even just like, the possibility of it happening. And that's what gets them to come to my office. They're like, I don't want to go down that path and we need to do something before, before I make a stupid decision. And I, I feel like, yeah, there's definitely times where it plays into the work that I end up doing with couples in particular. How often are people willing to forgive? I think it depends on who you are. <laughs> and I also think it depends on if we've moved effectively out of this like crisis phase, right? Of either the revelation or the the possibility of it happening and that like kind of shaking our emotional foundation as a couple. I think if they're able to move through that and they feel a bit more solid and on firmer ground, then we can talk about, okay, so what does this mean? And how can we move forward from this and make sure this never happens again? And can you let go of this? Does it feel like there's something that you still need from your partner in order to move forward or forgive and move on? Um, and I feel like that's going to be a little bit different for every couple and for every partner. But I definitely think that forgiveness is possible. And mm -hmm. it just kind of depends on if you're willing to do the work to get there. Do you ever feel like there are certain qualities that can kind of be attributed to male or female, or is it just like solely human based? Everybody is completely different. I think that there are certain, yeah, like qualities or, you know, personality traits or presentations even that uh, more often happen for men, women, um, 
cisgender people, transgender people. I think it kind of depends. It depends a little bit, but I, I think I like to take the approach that the person in front of me is unique in all of their own ways. And I want to know how they're put together. Cause I'm sure it's not just that, you know, they're a responsive desire type and their dad cheated on their mom and they have a really terrible history with partners doing that with them. And turns out that their partner did it with them. <laughs> right. I think it, it just kind of depends on who I'm looking at. I want to be sure that I understand them wholly as a person. And I feel like I want to take the perspective of like, everyone is going to be unique and there's going to be things that feel similar between people and there's things that are going to be feel, feel different. But some things are somewhat predictable, right? Based on testosterone or estrogen. Possibly. Yeah. Um, or you haven't think of anything in particular? I'm just thinking like, no matter what, when someone comes in, you have to have some set of predetermined judgment. And I'm not saying that as a negative thing. I'm just saying when you meet anybody, you see them and you automatically think something. And then you have to take all of that data that you have seen and heard and interpreted, and you have to try to figure out what you're going to do with it. And that's not always a bad thing. I'm saying there's certain aspects of traditional stereotypes in different persons, especially in relationship scenarios where you see them and you can say, oh, I kind of understand what's going on here because this person is that and this person is that. I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's a little bit reductive, but I'm sure I've gotten to a place in my career too where let's call it evaluating. Yeah. I feel like I can evaluate people pretty quickly. Like, oh, you're doing this, you're doing this. That's how it fits together. The reason you're doing this is because of X, Y, Z that you've told me about. And you're doing this because of X, Y, Z reason that you've told me about. Here's how we're going to solve this together. But I, again, I feel like that kind of is determined not necessarily by, you know, your gender or even to like uh, your hormones or things of that nature. I think that it can, it can definitely still vary between couples. And so I want to keep an open mind when I'm evaluating or trying yeah. to assess what's going on. But yeah, I definitely feel like there comes a point in which I'm like, um, I feel like the rather classic pattern for couples is pursue withdraw. So one partner pursues and the other person withdraws yeah. or pulls away. Um, and I feel like that's a pretty easy one to identify. So if I'm evaluating a couple, I'm like, oh, in this instance, he's the one that's pursuing and she's the one that's pulling away. Whereas you might find in some literature that it's actually the other way around more, most often. Like she's the one who pursues, pursues the issues and he's the one that pulls away. Maybe it's different because we're talking about sex, but. <laughs> Do you know about attachment styles? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's along that line, right? Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because that's, that's a pretty standard relationship scenario and it's it's unhealthy but somebody will pursue and it scares one person away and then that person will realize that it's not working so they start to run away and then the other person runs toward them and pursues them it's this constant back and forth where you can't ever quite meet in the middle because somebody's always chasing the other person i feel like though the fact that it can go back and forth is is okay. In fact, if you feel like you can switch roles, that's probably that's probably more healthy than feeling chronic and, and fixed, right? If you have someone who is always the pursuer of issues and you have someone who is always the person who pulls away, right? Like never involved, not emotionally available, 
probably avoid an attachment. Mm-hmm. And you have someone who is more anxious and maybe uh, very involved or you know very intensely focused on their partner and their partner's behavior and not able to you know kind of give them give them space. Like that probably becomes a negative pattern in and of itself. And it might actually be that 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 negative cycle is one of the reasons why they can't get to a place where they feel resolved in their arguments and it just keeps escalating. And then eventually we get to, what did I call it? The recession stage where, well, now the pursuer is not even pursuing. They're like, well, I'm not getting anything out of you. So I'm just going to go to whatever I'm doing. And this person is still withdrawn and now they're both withdrawn. Right. So, I mean, I think that if you have a concern and you pursue the issue and your partner pulls away from you, like that's understandable. Maybe it's in your approach and we can work on that. And if your partner feels like they can pursue you on certain things, like I can come to you and be like, hey, that thing that you did, like that really bothered me. Or honestly, too, maybe I come at you like really intensely. Yes, you're pursuing the issue and there's probably better ways to talk about it. But as long as we're working through the fact that we're pursuing and withdrawing and we're not doing it again in this way that feels like chronic, like I'm always this and you're always that, then I think it's a little bit easier to manage or figure out or work through in the long run. So. And how often do you have people that come in where the therapy is actually bad for them? I think that I don't want to say exclusively, but I feel like that happens most often when there's uh, violence or abuse. Um, I mean that that's pretty contraindicated. You don't want to see a couple where um, there's active abuse going on and it's not able to be addressed or talked about or even to the partner who is abusing their partner is able to recognize that that's not great behavior and address it. Um, yeah. Do you have to turn people in potentially based on what you hear? It kind of, I will admit that that one kind of depends in terms of like my manda- mandated reporter like requirements. If I hear anything about like child abuse or elderly abuse, then absolutely I have to call somebody yeah. pr- like within 24 hours. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, you know, they've had multiple domestic disturbances or the police have been called on them a couple of times or, you know, things of that nature because it doesn't fall in line with like having to report it's actually it it's a little confusing but most often it falls under uh like therapist client confidentiality yeah um but even then there especially if there's like intent to commit homicide or like severely violent crime against uh, someone especially the person that you love and care about then i probably will have to call somebody about that um but i would say that that is probably the number one reason why Couples therapy is not recommended in certain cases. Um, And it really does depend on how willing and motivated couples in that situation are uh, to work on it. I think I talked to someone recently. It wasn't my couple. I had a supervisee, actually. I had a supervisee who was talking to me about this couple that seemed particularly intense in their in their fights. They seemed to get pretty dysregulated pretty easily and they would escalate. And it wasn't that one person was abusing the other. It's that they were kind of in this situational violence, if you will. Like they would just get to this point where like one of them would try to block the other person in and they would like take a swing at them and then they would like leave and they'd be slamming doors and stuff like that. And we're like, well, that's borderline. We probably need to talk about if that continues on, we're probably not going to be able to do couples therapy. And maybe let's make that clear to 
the two of them. But I would say, again, that's probably the biggest concern. Are you ever helping people diagnose personality disorders? Not on the regular. In fact, I prefer in my practice to not provide people with diagnoses. Diagnoses are really only required when you're working with insurance, and I have chosen to not work with insurance in my practice. Um, I find I find that sometimes having a label for people, whether we're talking personality disorders or even um, any of the sexual disorders that are listed in the DSM or talking about mental health disorders or um, difficulties, if you will, sometimes having that language or having a diagnosis can actually be really reassuring or helpful for people. It might point them in the right direction for what might be useful or some resources. But I personally don't like to ascribe or say like, oh, yes, you have major depressive disorder with a bit of like schizophrenic (laughs) thrown in there. I I feel like that probably is not tremendously helpful in the long run. It seems challenging to do no matter what, Mm -hmm. because people are so fluid. Mm -hmm. I mean, the brain is a crazy place Mm -hmm. and you don't fully understand what you're doing all the time, especially if you're not quite right. And a lot of those uh, personality disorders have so much overlap. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say too, that a lot of them have a great deal of overlap, not just with each other, but with a diagnosis like post-traumatic stress disorder, right? In fact, I think I saw something recently that was showing the, symptoms of complex PTSD and bipolar, or not sorry, borderline personality disorder um, side by side. And the symptoms uh, that matched up between them was very high, like a really high percentage. Hmm. Like someone who might present with a personality disorder might actually just be suffering from like really complex trauma, um, which you do want to treat a little bit differently than saying that this is somebody's personality. So I think that's maybe another reason why I don't often go towards personality disorders. I don't know if they're really that helpful, especially because a lot is pointing to it's not really a personality thing. It's probably a trauma. It's probably personal experience that has shaped this person into reacting uh, and responding to stimuli the way Mm -hmm. that they do. So when you're working with people... How often is it that you you can see a major issue in one of the parties and you kind of have to, like, is it is it usually both parties have issues or is it a lot of times you see one person and you're like, you got some things going on. I need to help you so that this can work. I would, I would say that there's often times where it is pretty clear to me that both partners have something to work on, yeah. right? It's probably not the same thing because they're not they're not in the same position in the relationship, right? The withdrawing partner needs to work on coming closer and the pursuing partner needs to work on giving their other partner a little bit of space, right? So there's things that they both need to work on. But sometimes, yeah, there are instances where it's really clear to me that one partner is presenting with all of the issues and the other person is not presenting with much, if at all, of the issues. And I find that very sus. (laughs) That usually means that there's there's an imbalance here and there probably is something that this other partner that looks to be like, oh, I have nothing to do with this. Uh, (laughs) There's probably something that they need to work on, but it's not as obvious. It's not as clear as what seems to be the ver- a very vocal, potentially, partner 
who's dealing with a lot of particular issues. Um, it's been my experience that when I focus on the partner who has the more visible issues, I'm like, okay, let's start bringing your activity down. Let's talk about what feels like some negative self-talk and like bringing up your self-esteem and getting you to a new place. It will often become a little bit clearer, like what this person's role is in all of that. Be like, ah, there you are. <laughs> now I see how this is all actually fitting together. Yeah. You just touched on something that I wanted to talk about and I'm glad you said that. Uh, a lot of what happens to you and how you present yourself to people when you're pursuing a relationship or when you're just at work or when you're just trying to interact with people, period, is your confidence level. And if you don't like yourself, people aren't going to like you. And if you're coming to that in a relationship, it's just it just seems like a downward spiral. I was listening to a podcast the other day and uh, he was talking about a female being in an abusive relationship. And the worse the man treated the woman, mm -hmm. the worse she felt about herself. And then she would just internalize that and say, I'm a piece of shit. No one's going to want me. I'll just stay here. Mm -hmm. So this awful situation where you have an abusive uh, male spouse, there's no hope for that person to get out because treating them worse makes them feel worse. And then they're just like, okay, this is what it is. No one else wants me. Mm. It's such a horrible situation to to be trapped in something like that where uh, you just feel like there's no, I mean, you can't get out. You don't want to get out. You're just like, okay, this is it. And I mean, somebody in, in that type of situation probably isn't going to come see you. They're just trapped until something happens eventually. But um, it, it, to me, it's like this lifelong thing where you just, based on your circumstances when you're a kid and what movies you watch and who your parents are and who you hang out with and who, who teaches you at school, you develop all these ideas of what it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And you think you're supposed to go to college and you think you're supposed to get married and you're supposed to have kids. And you're supposed to buy a house. Like that's the traditional American dream. Mm -hmm. And as you go through and you do some of those things, sometimes when it doesn't work out, you just don't know what to do. And it's, um, it sneaks up on you. <laughs> it sneaks up on you. And then you're 40 years old and you're like, what is going on? What is this thing I was supposed to be doing? And uh, I, I wish people were more introspective and willing to admit fault and willing to try different things. Because it's a, you get one shot and it's, it's, a, it's a quick ride. And I don't know, I just hate to see people not try. And cool that the people coming to see you are trying i will admit most of the time they're interested in trying i also don't think though that people that don't have confidence or find themselves in a position to have their confidence shaken on a regular basis want to feel bad about themselves right i think unfortunately that's probably a product of their circumstances or of you know people around them like really giving them this idea that there's something wrong with you and you don't deserve to, you know, have nice things or to 
live or be a person or to be treated with respect. And and I feel like the longer you're in that position, yeah, it's definitely harder to hear the opposite of that message. It's hard to believe like, no, because I'm a human, I'm inherently worthy. I do wish we all knew that at the core. Like, if you're if you're listening and you need that, you are worthy. You are perfectly good just as you are. And I I think that speaking to this idea that you know this person is is trapped in this abusive relationship. Yeah, there's still research that says that it takes on average like eight tries for someone to leave an abusive relationship. But I feel like the more that you can stay in touch with this person right? Because that's another thing that often happens with uh, abusers is they try to isolate their partners. Uh, The more that you can stay in touch with this person and remind them that like there is stuff outside of this and they deserve to, you know, love their life and, and they have other people that care about them. I think it becomes easier to, to say like, wait, is that really a story that I need to be telling myself that I'm a worthless piece of shit? Or is that something that someone else has put on me and I don't need to keep carrying that around? I feel like it becomes easier when you have other inputs, other data to kind of go off of, but not everybody has that. And that becomes difficult too. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't think anyone wants to feel that way. I think that unfortunately it's often a product of their circumstances. Do you feel like you're a cheerleader in sessions? You feel like you're, you're attempting to build people up to empower them and give them confidence? Sometimes I think that again, it really depends on the couple that I'm seeing, right? If, one of them is struggling with self-esteem issues or confidence, and it seems to be acutely related to how available they are sexually or even to how connected they feel to their partner, then I'll probably be like, yeah, we should really work on you feeling better about yourself. And let's also talk about how what's going on here in your sexual relationship probably isn't giving you that impression. So I I feel like I kind of take this like twofold approach. Right. If your sex life is sort of telling you that like you suck at this and this is your fault and you're the problem, then I'm going to come in and be like, that's that's over there. You are perfectly fine just as you are. Right? There's nothing wrong with you. And your sex life is a thing that needs to be addressed. Like these are these are separate. So yeah, I definitely try to build some people up if it feels like it's necessary to do so. And then I think the other thing that I want to be sure that I'm focusing on is how is your pattern with your partner ultimately creating this experience where you feel like you have to blame yourself or not feel good or worthy or okay in your own skin. So. Yeah. And do you ever have people just freak out on you? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I've had some people <laughs> freak out on me for sure. That's probably, you had to think about it that long. <laughs> uh, well, I'm trying, I was trying to think of like, what was the worst one actually? Um, I've had people walk out of session before. Uh, I've had people, uh, yell at me. I've had people be like, that was truly insensitive. And I'm like, oh, let me tell me about that. I would love to know what you heard me say. Well, yeah, I was curious. How, how often do you censor what you say? I, I feel like I censor a fair amount of the time. It does depend though on how uh, close I feel with this couple, yeah. like how, how much rapport we've built with one another. Like if I have been working with a couple for only three sessions and I'm clearly seeing something that we should probably talk about, but it's such a sore point and I can see that it's such a sore point. I'm probably not going to come right out and be like, we should really talk about how you're behaving exactly like your abusive father. I don't think that's going to go over very Mm -hmm. well, 
But I imagine if I'm, I've been working with this couple for like six months and they feel like they're in a slightly different place and maybe we can kind of joke with each other and be like, hey, you're really behaving like your dad. Do you want to talk about it? And they'll be like, oh God. Why'd you have to bring that up? Lana, no. And I'm like, sorry, this is why you're here though, right? Like this is this kind of stuff that we need to be sure that we're talking about. So I really think it depends on, you know, who I'm with and and if I feel like I need to censor myself with this person. Um, and yeah, and then there are some times where I'm just like, I'm gonna have to tread very carefully with this no matter what, because I can just tell that this is a very big sore point for this person. So just be mindful of it. Yeah, which can be tough because if your ultimate goal is to help them, that's the stuff people don't wanna hear is mm-hmm. the obvious stuff that they should fix. Mm-hmm. When I think there's also some benefit to you know, taking the the more, I don't want to say it's even like aggressive, sometimes it's just more of an assertive approach. Um, there's a couples therapist, um, couples and individual therapist named Terry Real, and I am a pretty big fan of his work. And he says a lot of the time that uh, joining through the truth can be really powerful. So if you just lay it out there for them, like, you're behaving like a bully. Do you want to know why she's not having sex with you? Like, you keep pushing her. Mm-hmm. Right? No one's going to want to actually get naked with someone who treats them like hot garbage. Like, what are you, in fifth grade? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? I feel like there there is some benefit every once in a while to be like, I want to show you what it is that you're doing. Do you want to keep doing that? Or do you want to maybe engage in the process with me and maybe figure this out? Some people can handle that and some people aren't prepared for doing that too. So I think it's a it's a fine line. It's a dance. This is a. It's more of an art than it is a science in a lot of instances. Yeah, I'm. I'm so impressed by what you do because yeah, you're you're balancing individuals at their worst, possibly, possibly at their worst, and trying to help them see things they don't want to see. That seems so crazy and challenging. I do have to wait for my moment a lot of the times. So this is true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it just popped in my head too. We we got to talk about porn and how that has affected this generation. Mm. Uh, because I don't view it as a negative thing. I'm sure some couples do. But the ability to access it has become way different. I mean, just within 50 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, you used to have to find a magazine or something Mm -hmm. and or use your imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then then it was VHS Mm -hmm. and then DVDs. And now you can find anything you want at any time. You could be four years old and you open up a browser on the phone. Like, it doesn't matter. And so that, they're, they're going to do studies, and they've done studies, and we're going to know more in 20, 30, 40 years when it's going to be even different. This has affected society in a way that I think there's always a possibility for negative consequences, and there's always a possibility for positive consequences. And uh, having a sexual drive and... Um, having the ability to masturbate and take care of yourself mm-hmm. can make things better for you and your partner, or it can create an issue if they feel like you're focusing more on that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I just can't even imagine how many situations you come across where it involves porn, right? Honestly, not as many really? as I feel like uh, would happen for someone who's, you know, in my field. That's not to say it doesn't happen. Uh, and I think I would agree with you while we don't really know the implications of having pornography more easily accessible on the internet, like what's that, what is that doing to people? I think a big part of the issue is that if we're, if we're treating pornography as education rather than entertainment, right? If we're not talking about sex education or even being like porn literate, then I feel like there is a much, there's a much bigger issue and it probably is impacting your ability to connect with your partner or even to connect with yourself sexually um, just based on what it is that you're watching. Like if you if you believe that what you're watching in pornography is how sex is supposed to be, I think you will be sorely disappointed that that is not often what it is, not only uh, what it's going to feel like, but even to what sex is or could be with a partner. And that probably isn't helping you in the long run. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it, it can have different purposes for different people. And I don't think it's a replacement for sex. The thing that scares me about it is uh, one, all the stuff that gets uploaded without consent, you know, like Mm -hmm. underage sex slaves, that type of stuff. Uh, But also like, there's some weird stuff. And my mantra on anything on the internet is you don't want to look at it. You don't want it in your brain. You don't want to see some dude in Saudi Arabia with ISIS beheading somebody. You don't want that in your brain. You don't want to see half the the gross sexual stuff that's on the internet. You don't want to see like dudes popping zits. Like there's so much gross stuff on the internet and you don't want to put that in your brain. And I feel like some people go down wormholes and because of the algorithm in everything that exists, it sees what you're looking at and it feeds you more of what you're looking at. And then you just eventually keep going further and further and further. And it has the potential to do some wild stuff to human beings. Cause you should not be able to see anything you want to at any point. But the other thing that's going to happen is, um, and this is like futuristic and weird and whatever, but it's, we're going to get to a point where it's going to be so real with VR that I think there's a lot of people who are incapable of having conversations with people and understanding how humans work and understanding attraction and trying to figure out why someone likes you and, and how you become their partner. Like all that stuff is intertwined and it's difficult and you have to work at it if you want it to happen. But there's going to be a point in the next 20, 30, 40 years where you won't have to do that anymore. You can put on a pair of goggles and you can have sex with Margot Robbie if you want to. (laughs) And that's going to be okay for some people. And it's going to be this weird uh, societal disconnect that's going to happen because there's so many people right now who suck at interacting with people. And that's just, that's taken place over the last 20 years, just with the the internet. So I just, I don't know where I'm going with it, but it's just going to get weird. I mean, I certainly hope not. Uh, (laughs) I hope that 
because I feel like this is a fair amount of the work that I do. I hope that people realize that connecting with another human being can be one of the most profound experiences that you can have. And it's nothing at all like putting on VR goggles and having sex with Margot Robbie, which, you know, I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum. Like if you want to look at weird stuff on the internet, like go for it. It's none of my business. Unless you're underage, then I imagine that it's somebody's business. But I think that there's, I feel like there's a lot to be said for nothing really compares to the real thing if you know what it actually feels like. I agree with you. And not a lot of people, unfortunately, I, especially a lot of folks that I think come to see me, really know what it feels like to be that emotionally, physically, sexually vulnerable and connected to another person. And I think in a lot of ways it would be rather scary to do that. But I feel like once they're able to, or even to if they get to a place in their work with me where it feels like it's even just a little bit better, you can help but be motivated to want to make that the best possible thing. Like, I want to know how to make our relationship, you know, that much better, that much more sustainable, this much, much more loving and caring. And, you know, it's just going to make the sex much more fun too, right? The longer you know someone, the you know, the better the sex can be as long as you feel like you're doing it right. So, I mean, I hope we don't go in that direction. And I also hope that we realize that, yes, that that is a thing that can exist, but it doesn't have to, nor even like, should it be a replacement for the ability for us to connect with another human being? Mm -hmm. um, and one of the ways that we do that is through sex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's... Uh it's indescribable. I mean, there's so many things to enjoy in life and you, you get to take, um, take pleasure in the small things that you don't always fully understand when they're happening. Uh, you know, you just like, you smell something and you you remember your boyfriend or your girlfriend from high school and you're like, where did that come from? There's like all the stuff that's happening to you all the time and that your, your, your brain is logging and you're generating these memories and, and, and creating uh, all these things that you can look back on, all this nostalgia. And it, it makes you human and it makes you appreciate everything. And it's just a part of the experience. And I think it's going to go away at some point. And I think you and I are lucky and everyone else alive right now is lucky that we get to do it because it, it, it will disappear at some point. And we are like probably one of the last few generations that get to experience like quote unquote regular life. It was, it was the same thing forever, you know, like it didn't get weird until a couple hundred years ago. And I try to think about, like, when I knew you were coming, I was trying to think about stuff we were going to talk about. I try to think about, like, how we have sex now versus how people had sex two, three, four, five hundred thousand years ago. And a lot of it was, it's not cool, but a lot of it was rape. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's how a majority of the animal kingdom works. Nobody's doing it for fun. It's to make babies. And you don't even, I mean, a lion, a duck, uh, I mean, they don't know what, they don't know why they're doing it. It's, mm -hmm. it's built into their DNA to make this thing happen, to procreate. And we have developed um, 
cognitive brains with uh, free will and love and emotion and all this kind of stuff. And we've determined what's right and what's wrong when we're interacting with humans. But for a long time, it was, it was probably not that good. You know, I feel like sex probably got really good in the last 80 years. I wish I could quote some research to you at this point in time. I'm like, I have no idea. I'm like, when did we first discover that we could have orgasms? Well, I would love I to know that. I was um, thinking but... about that too, because it, it forever, it wasn't about whether or not a woman had an orgasm. You know, that wasn't a thing until recently. Yeah, it's, and still, sometimes it's not. And still, sometimes it's not. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 And uh, I don't know. It's cool. It is a thing that you get to experience with someone else. And like you said, if you've never done it, then you don't know. But it can be a beautiful thing. It can be a ter terrible, terrifying thing. Uh, it's it's like, it's the unknown. And sometimes it sucks. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes you're way attracted to somebody and then it happens and you're like, oh my God. And then other times you're just like at a party or something and you're like, whoa, like there's no way to quantify what is going to happen until you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I feel like too, uh, human beings are notoriously bad at determining how they're going to feel when they get into a situation. They're like, oh yeah, when that happens, I'm going to feel this particular way. Really bad at actually determining how you're going to feel when you find yourself in that, in that place. Well, what I expected was going to happen is not at all what actually happened. Like I thought this sexual experience was going to be the most amazing, mind-blowing thing. And I, it was just kind of like, okay. Mm -hmm. It's not like I didn't have an orgasm, but like it just, it was it was fine, right? So I think that there's, yeah, a lot to be said for our ability to, to also try to think through or think about what it would be like to be in that scenario and maybe to having an expectation and being a little bit disappointed <laughs> by the outcome if we had something else in mind. Yeah, the expectation can ruin you sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of it is just um, being okay with yourself. I mean, it seems like the worst it's ever been for me is when somebody was too in their head, when they're too concerned about how they look. I mean, the best sex that you usually have is when people just embrace who they are and they're just like, this is what it is. Like, I like me. I hope you like me. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it doesn't get better than that. And, I mean, unless you're in love, you know. Uh, I'm just saying, like, there's something that happens when you're with another person mm -hmm. that is so unexplainable. And it, um, I don't know, I think it just goes back so deep we don't fully understand it. Because it's like, the, there's a specific reason that that is like one of the best feelings in the world. And it's because you have to do it to make sure your race doesn't die, to make sure your species continues. That's the thing you have to do. If it didn't feel good, we'd be dead. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's very fair. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's like a mystical thing. And uh, it, it doesn't have to be, but it can be, I don't know, it can be like nothing or it can be everything. Yeah, it could be mystical, it can be, mythical it can be complicated uh you can have good feelings about it you can have bad feelings about it i mean i think sex kind of kind of run, runs the gamut there 
It um, does. Mm-hmm. It does. And you get to hear all about it. Yeah. Most of the time. <laughs> so every once in a while, it's funny. I do have couples that come to see me and it takes them like a month to be like, oh, by the way, we're also having a sexual issue. And I'm like, oh, I mean, I assume that's why you came to see me, but it took you a little while to maybe actually get to that place. So, <laughs> so most of the time we're talking about sex and I get to hear all about it. And then every once in a while I'll get someone who's like, well, I guess we better rip off the bandaid and actually like say something about this now. And I'm like, I'm here for it. I promise. <laughs> You're I like, promise I've been waiting. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm just waiting, waiting around over here. I promise you will not say anything that's going to shock me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to say it, but I'm sure you've heard some crazy stuff, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Has anybody ever shocked you? Mm, maybe early maybe, in your career. Maybe early in my career, yeah. maybe once. And and truthfully, it was because, uh, yeah, it was just a particularly intense, and it sounds like it was a particularly traumatic thing. I think I was more like, oh my God, like you've been through a lot. And yeah. It wasn't a good experience, but I feel like I understand you so much more now as a client and as a person. So, yeah, I think that maybe there's been one time where someone has, like, shocked me with what they've said around sex and sexuality. And what I think is, is I'm going to go with interesting, but there is an aspect of it that is a little bit funny is when people are so shy about wanting to, like, come forward with, like, I have fantasies about being a furry. I'm like, that's cool. And they're like. I've been holding on to that for years. And I'm like, yeah, I'm cool with it. It's totally fine. You cannot shock me. I, I told you yeah. that and I, I meant it from the bottom of my heart. You cannot shock me with anything you want to say. But it's usually something like that, right? And I think people unfortunately carry a lot of shame or, you know, like this like self-critical attitude about like, I shouldn't like this or this makes me a bad person. And I'm sure that that plays into whether or not they feel comfortable even talking about sex, not just you know, with me, but even to with people that they know and love and care about and who want them to have a good sex life, like their partner. Yeah. So. Yeah. You carry that baggage for so long and you kind of forget it's there, but it's, it's weighing on you. Mm-hmm. You got to get, get it off your shoulders somehow. Yeah, definitely can. All right. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Okay.